I want to speak to you this morning about the cross. And uh, I wasn't sure exactly how you guys handled the, this week. This is a special week. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, and then <clears throat> Friday is uh, the day of the crucifixion, if you would, the death of Christ. And then, um, uh, of course, Sunday is the day of resurrection. That's where we've been headed with these last few sermons. But this morning, I'd like to speak to you about why the cross. Why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why did God send his son to die for all mankind's sins? Couldn't he just take us as we are? <laughs> a lot of people wish that he would. They don't want to believe, so they're just counting on God taking them as they are, and they can live any way they want. <clears throat> Couldn't he just take us as we are and let us live out our lives so that we could then go to heaven and spend eternity enjoying his love for us without the cross? Why the cross? This morning I'd like to give you five reasons for the cross. Five reasons we celebrate Good Friday when Jesus died on a barbaric, awful cross. What could be so good about a day when someone was crucified? Yet it was that day that the whole world changed. The pivot of history is this Friday, the day Christ died. In fact, we um, in the Western world have for years uh, numbered our years from the time of Christ's death, A.D. and B.C. That's, there's Latin in there, and I'm not a Latin person, so, but just say it was after death and before Christ. They're trying to change that somewhat now. Hope you realize that. That's going on. Yet it was that day that the whole world changed. One special day. One day when Jesus hung on a tree. And all history changed. So I want to give you, excuse me, five reasons for the cross that changed all human history. First, why the cross? Because creation has fallen. If you have your Bibles, it'll be up here, but uh, let me read Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, was that what God really said? You ever examine that? Eve was making it up right there. That wasn't what he said. He just said, don't eat it. He didn't say anything about touching it. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree 
was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. I'm going to read through a number of different passages this morning, but I would uh, like to just pray after this one. So let's pray for a moment. Father, as we examine the cross, we ask that you would just open our hearts and our minds to what some of what you did when you hung your son there and you gave him for us. Fill us with your spirit. Speak to us from your word. Have your way with our hearts and minds right now. Lead us into truth and into righteousness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3 tells us of the fall of man. Eve partook of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then Adam followed suit. Like any good man or husband, he followed his wife at that point. Excuse my little joke there, but <clears throat> man has struggled with that ever since. Consequently, all of creation has borne the brunt of that one act ever since then. One act. We all bear the scar of that one human act of disobedience to God's commands. I know we hear things at times, but let me tell you something. All of God's commands are good. And all of them want to bring blessing on us. Before I became a Christian, I'd go, well, no, I don't want to do that stuff. You know, he's, he's cutting out my fun. No, he's not. He's blessing us with goodness when we follow his commands. Adam disobeyed, and every human being since then has paid for it. I've heard people say over the years that they should not be held responsible for someone else's, for what someone else did. My reply is twofold. Haven't we all made decisions that we regret and that affect others and that we feel bad about? I know I have. I know we have all at one time or another done something that we wished we hadn't done. The whole decision-making process has a determined outcome and an undetermined outcome. Some things we know will happen, others we never see. Adam's decision to partake of the fruit had a huge amount of unintended consequences for each and all of us. For all have sinned, Paul said in Romans, for all have sinned. Adam's sin had consequences whether we like it or not. And second, I am and so are you a flawed human being. And I do not make right decisions all the time. I'm not perfect, nor are you. And so a compilation of our sins makes a mess. Generally, when I make one bad decision, it's followed by several bad decisions that end up making a huge mess is what I'm getting at. I'm sure none of you have gone through that. I realize I'm speaking to the most holy saints. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> this is a direct result of the fall, and consequently, we have all inherited a sin nature, and because, of my, because my nature is sinful, I sin. And so do you. 
We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We can thank Adam for that. His sin became genetic. I call it genetic. I don't know. You can argue with me scientifically if it's genetic, but I believe we're all predisposed to sin. We have a sin nature. The Bible calls it a sin nature. And so we sin. I wished we didn't, but we do. Paul put this all together in the book of Romans in that verse I've sort of been quoting. He's Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He goes on to say that our sin has even affected creation. Have any of you kept up with the the uh, chemical spill that went on, and I think it was in East Jordan, Ohio, several weeks back. It was devastating. They had to evacuate the town. They can't drink their water any longer. Basically destroyed the ecosystem within about two or three or four square miles. It was horrendous. Our government did nothing. Biden was in Ukraine. Never even sent one of his people there to take care of it. Excuse me, I'm getting political here. I don't mean to do that. But, but what I'm saying is, is that that spill is an indication of, of nature groaning under the sin of man. Romans 8, 18 to 22 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. You catch that? For, to, to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Even creation was touched by our sin. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. I could go down a whole litany of different things that we've done to pollute our environment, to destroy the world that God has given us. When we walked out of the garden, we walked into an ongoing groan, if you would, of all of creation. That's how deep the sin was that Adam subjected us to. And not just creation we see and walk in, but God's created order, every aspect of it. Homosexuality is a destruction of God's created order. This whole thing with transgenderism in every form is a destruction of God's created order. Creation includes all people in their relationships and their societies and their families and their cultures. All of these were created by God. As a matter of fact, let your imagination run wild for a minute and try to think of anything that was not created by God or that God did not give the creative energy and ability to create. I think about technology. I, I know scientists, some of you are probably techno-bugs or techno-whatevers. I'm not. <laughs> but God gave the creative energy, creative insight to be able to develop the things that we have now. I don't have time, but I believe that God's blessing has been so much on this country that we have led the world in 
innovation and inventions. And those are out of God's creative energy and ability to create. And yet, the fall, the thing that happened in the garden, has still placed itself onto all of that. It's present tense. It's still going on. This is how great the sin has been and how far it has touched and hurt and destroyed. Sin kills. Remember the old ad, speed kills? Let me tell you something. Sin kills. Sin destroys. All of creation has been hampered by Adam's sin and man's sin ever since Adam. All of God's creative order, all that he has created has been stamped with sin. Why the cross? Because all, because of the fall of creation and all that God created and that he said was good was marred by the sin of man. Only the death of the Savior could begin to make that right. In fact, the new heavens and the new earth will be populated by people who have been cured of sin so that, we, so that it will have no effect and consequently everything will be new. Not to go into this, but he talks about a new heaven and new earth. The Bible tells us he's going to remake this one, and it's going to be wonderful. Heaven and earth will be joined together. And when they're joined together, God will be seated on the throne. Read Revelation. And there'll be light everywhere continually, because there'll be no darkness. There'll be nothing to hide. Amen. Why the cross? Secondly, because the payment of sin can only happen by the shedding of blood. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 real quick. and I marked all this in my new Bible, and it's hard for me to flip pages very quickly. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Also for Adam, this is after the fall, and God has pronounced his judgment on them. He says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. You know, he, he speaks to them, and then basically the first thing after that is he clothes them with tunics of skin. He clothed them with the skin of an animal that had been killed for them. He covered them in the blood and skin of a slain animal. Some of you probably know how to tan leather or tan deer skin. I wonder if God tanned it before he put it on him. The first real set of clothes was a display of the fact that it cost a life to pay for sin. They had lost their innocence and could no longer be comfortable naked before each other and before God. Sin destroys that innocence. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was built on the premise that when one sinned, there had to be a blood sacrifice to atone or pay for the sin of that person. All the temple ceremony was set up so that a person could offer a sacrifice for themselves before they went in any further into the presence of God in the temple. Particularly the high priest. He went through a, a, a large regiment of stuff to get ready, to just to go into the Holy of Holies. 
And this last week, for whatever reason, I think of weird things, but I kept thinking about the cord around his foot. You know, they tied a cord around his foot when they sent him into the Holy of Holies. You know why? Because if there was even a slightest glimpse of sin, God would strike him dead right on the right in front of the mercy seat. And they'd have to drag his body out. They offered the blood of goats and bulls and sheep and turtle doves and to pay for their sin. Again, Paul caught a flavor of this in his letter to the Romans when he said, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Sin kills. Sin produces only death. And the only way to pay for sin is through death of something or somebody. Please remember that. When you sin, when you lie, in the, in the Old Testament, it gave us the Ten Commandments. If, if they broke even one of those, it took blood to cleanse them. And that blood came from the death of something, an animal, until Christ. The writer of Hebrews catches this. In Hebrews 10, it says, But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of the sins every year. The writer also acknowledges that it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats that they could take away the sins. She got it up here. Let me read it from there. For the law having... Back up, if you would. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. That's why they had to keep coming back. Every year they had to have that sin of atonement taken care of. For then would they have not ceased to be offered for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The ancient Jew could never get anything sealed and done with. He had to go back every year. So why the cross? Only Christ's death on the cross could fully pay the price of the sins of man why the cross? Because there had to be a shedding of blood, a taking of life to pay for your sin and my sin so that we could come to God. Why the cross? Number three. Forgive me. Because God is holy. And demands us to be holy like himself. In Leviticus 17, 18, it says, For the life is in the blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Why is he giving blood? To make us holy. God is holy. He can't take anything that's unholy anywhere around him. As I understand it, if, if, if an unholy thing walks into God's presence, like that priest, he'll be dragged out dead. Isaiah, in, in his 
uh, wonderful picture. I think we looked at this once last fall when I first started coming here. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne and high lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, do you have that? Listen to what Isaiah himself said. Let me find it real quick. As a result of that, the post of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, now listen to what Isaiah said. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Boy, what would he say today? Do we live in the midst of a people of unclean lips? And yet when, when Isaiah went in to the presence of God, God's holiness illuminated his unholiness. God is holy, and he demands us to be holy so that we might have fellowship with him, so that we might have that relationship with him. And quite frankly, there's nothing in us that's holy. Why the cross? Jesus died to pay the price so that his blood might cleanse us and make us holy. Holiness means purity. It means being perfect. Man became flawed, and God has no flaw in him. Man became less than perfect. Because he was not perfect, he could not come into God's presence. In fact, he fled from it. Remember again the garden when God came looking for Adam and Eve after they sinned. They hid themselves, and they were scared. Christ's death on the cross enables a man to become holy before God again. When Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood and Gave his life so that we might partake of his holiness. I always told my folks, holiness leads to happiness. It does. When we come to him in faith and acknowledge that we are a sinner and trust him to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from our sin, then we have the opportunity to become like him, holy, The cross can make us holy when we trust what God did through his son. When he placed him on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. Why the cross? Because the cross has the power to make us holy again in God's sight. It gives us access to his presence and thereby gives us eternal life. Why the cross, number four? Because the death of Christ on the cross enabled him to overcome death and consequently give us eternal life. Romans 6, verses 3 to 11. Now, I'm a Baptist, okay, in heart and in training and in my denominational background. And this talks about baptism, and I I think you guys are dry land Baptist. I'm not sure about that. We haven't had that discussion before. But um, I'm, I'm going to talk about this as if I was a Duncan Baptist, okay? So 
Anyways, a little side humor there. <laughs> but verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? I used to read this at our baptisms. When you drop a person down into the water, it's a symbol of them dying with Christ, being buried with him, and then being raised up in newness of life. That's the way I take this passage. Verse 4 says that, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised, from, excuse me, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When we come up from the water, we are new. Symbolically, we are new. We're new creatures in Christ. Verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. There it is. You thought I forgot the resurrection. It's right here. <laughs> we couldn't have resurrection if there was no cross. The resurrection comes from the fact that Jesus died on the cross and then overcame death. Death couldn't hold him down. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Amen. Hallelujah. But the life that he lives, he lives to God, and so do we. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to, indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us eternal life, and it's showed by the cross, by what Christ did on the cross. When he overcame death, he proved that death could not hold him down and that he had eternal life for there would never be death again for him who had already died. The cross is where we identify with him in death, and death and sin, or death to sin, and to the wages of sin that will bring us death. When we place our faith in him, we experience the forgiveness of sin and life with God in heaven forever, which is eternal life. Bad, baptism, and whether you sprinkle or whether you dunk, baptism <laughs> is a symbol of this death to our sin life and resurrection to the new life of Christ. We have died with, we have died with Christ to sin, and we now live with Christ. I love this old hymn. I hope I can... I've been teary-eyed the whole morning. I apologize, but I love this old hymn. It's, it, you may know it, At the Cross. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond decree. Verse 3, we all might 
Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. I love that verse. When Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I'm happy so why the cross last? Number five. Because the cross is the foretaste of things to come. In Revelation, we have a picture of the new Jerusalem, of, of, uh, of what God is about to do with us and through us and for us. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. He says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. How could it be with men if men were sinful? See what God's done? And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The last thing to grasp about the cross this morning is that it gives us a glimpse of the things to come. He came to pay the price for our sin on the cross 2,000 years ago. He's coming again to set up his earthly kingdom and to then set up the new heavens and the new earth. The cross, if you would, is the first forerunner of all this. Those who have placed their simple faith in what Christ did for us on the cross will be inhabitants of that new heaven and that new earth. He came once, and let me tell you, he's coming back. You can bet everything you have on it. I want to end by quoting another favorite old hymn of mine. Years ago, when I first became a Christian, I used to memorize hymns quite a bit, and I, I love old hymns. I love the new stuff, too. I listen to Hillsong usually on the way over here. Um, I do that at, when I go to my other church. I listen to something to praise God with. I love the new stuff, but I love the old stuff. The old stuff is often theological. tells about God, who God is. The new stuff is more worshipful. We're worshiping Him. And that could be a harebringer of, if you would, of the coming of Christ. Because he's managing that. Again, it's his creative order that allows us to write hymns and write worship songs. You may know this one. Man of Sorrows, what a name. 
for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. <laughs> Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless, we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full redemption can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, to his kingdom, us to bring. Then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Finally, let me ask you this. Are you living, hoping that all you are doing will be enough to satisfy a totally holy and righteous God on your own? Or are you placing your faith in what that God has already done for you on the cross? Only one of, the, of these two is right, and only one will get you to heaven. You can live a perfect life almost. Nobody's perfect. Depending on your own righteousness, and you'll spend eternity in hell. The cross shows us what God has done to make a way for us to go to heaven, to be in eternal relationship with him. And the resurrection shows us that he has the power to do it. God bless his word. Forgive me for the tears this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you paid the price on the cross so that we might have eternal life, eternal blessing, eternal relationship, eternal bliss with you. Lord, I so look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. I so look forward to a place that is not marred by sin where man is not fighting against man where there is peace eternal and Lord I desire that everyone that hears me whether it's here or on a video on YouTube Lord I pray that all that hear me might simply pray this prayer Lord Jesus I'm a sinner I finally recognize it I understand that I've sinned and I can't take care of it myself. And so I ask that you would come in and cleanse my life, take over, that you would be my Savior. I humbly ask you to do that in faith. Cleanse me from my sin. And then, Lord Jesus, I know that when you hear that heart cry, whether it be in those words or another, Lord, you come in and you dwell within and you begin to change from the inside out. God, I thank you for that change. So Lord, do that today. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, do that today. If there's anybody in the hearing of this, do that today. Bring them so that they might enjoy what you paid for on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray.